Hello everyone and welcome to the Whitcomb Baptist Church podcast. My name is Susanna and I'm one of the trainees here and today I'm joined with Robert Hicks. Hello Robert. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the book of Romans. Um, on Sunday the church is starting a new series in Romans um, on Sunday mornings and we thought it would be really good to have an introduction to what the book of Romans is about and how it came about. How was writing done 2,000 years ago? Well, that is a very interesting question, as we've only been writing the way we are writing um, for the last 500 years, so you're going back 2,000 years. Um, most of the writing 2,000 years was done on a vegetable plant, a papyrus, of which we get our word paper. Um, and it was in a scroll format. And uh, they used to have a piece of board on their lap, and then they would write from right to left, not left to right, the way you reread. And as you can imagine, uh, with a scroll, when they filled a two-page section, they needed a piece of time for it to dry. So maybe they would put that down and work on another scroll. Hmm. So a person would be an expert in writing on scrolls. Most of the papyrus came from Egypt, but not the people doing the writing. And a person who was a scribe in those days was like a, a person with a degree in all the science. He had to understand, or she had to understand, because of the female scribes, they had to understand a lot of history, a lot of biography, a lot of all the fields of science. Um, and, but the vocabulary itself was relatively small. And it was about two to 3,000 words. Most of the books of our New Testament are less than a thousand words to give you an idea. So the vocabulary is very small, which is very convenient for us when translating. If we had to translate a 5,000 page document, uh, that would be much more difficult for translators. Yeah. So you've got that. Now, when they've had their training, which was an education in itself and a lot of time and a lot of money, um, they used to earn their income by each line that they wrote. So when a person wanted something written, maybe a document or a sale or whatever, you can imagine they want to condense the words down to the minimum because of the cost. Now, interestingly, both Old and New Testament, you have Bible truth condensed. So when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, that two or three days teaching, but we only we can read it in 10 minutes. So that shows you just how much condensed it is mm. so that is the expert of teaching is to try and dilute what has been condensed i called it um, campbell's condensed soup people of an older generation will know what campbell condensed soup you have to dilute it mm -hmm. to make the soup and you have to dilute the bible to make sense of it you also had the situation with these with this writing is that um the the maximum length of a writing was about 100 feet, which is about 30 meters, but the average length would be a third of that. There would be some just on a very small piece of um, papyrus. For instance, uh, you've got a, a, a letter called Philemon in your New Testament, you've got um, a letter called Jude in the New Testament, and you've got the second and the third epistle of John in the New Testament. You might even have the seven letters of revelation first put on small pieces mm. of papyrus so that's the way a book came about mm. it was an expensive job 
The papyrus was quite cheap. It was mm. the writing that was the expensive part. And of course, then if a person wrote something and they wanted more than one copy, then the scribe would go away and write it all over again and mm. create some copies. Sometimes the copies would vary slightly differently when they were copied. And that is because uh, a scribe would be introducing maybe a word here, word there to make it more clearer mm. in his opinion. That's mm. the way um, our New Testament was mm. written in the first occasion. It was written on papyrus. In the second century, the various scrolls that could be collected, and there was only a few scrolls that make up our New Testament, they were done in book format. Mm. In other words, instead of having them on a scroll, they would have them on a one sheet of papyrus, put two or three holes in the side, put them on top of each other and make a book. And that's the way we have what we call the book. It's still 2,000 years ago, but mm. that didn't happen. And it first happened in Egypt, but caught on in the Christian community in the second century. So, Susanna, that is your <laughs> briefest introduction <laughs> to the way where our New Testament came about as far as scrolls were concerned. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and I also wanted to mention that in the next couple of questions, Robert's going to be mentioning some charts that he's found. So um, we're going to include them in the email if you'd like to follow along and um, look at them as he's talking. So now coming to the book of Romans itself, um, how did that come about then? Well, that's, that's very interesting. You can find one of the earliest manuscripts of Romans in what is known as, I think, Papyrus 46. Yeah. Check that out and you could add that on them so those who are interested could see it. Um, it's a very interesting reading. What's very interesting about that reading is that just um, when translated, the King James Bible is an echo of that particular mm. translation, which makes that's one of the reasons why the King James Bible still today is an authentic Bible to be, to be read. For many reasons, that's just one of them. In terms of the Book of Romans, we have, to, we have to go back into really the life of Paul himself. He, he had been converted now for some 20 years um, and he'd been going around teaching and preaching. But when he ended up in a place called Ephesus, he stayed there three years and um, a few years later, he was able to say to the leadership of the various house churches in and around Ephesus, he said, don't you remember that when I was with you, I taught you all the counsel of God, not only in public, but also in your homes from home to home to home. So over this three year period, they were receiving teaching. That teaching would have been committed to various scrolls. And after three years teaching, it may have been 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 scrolls. Moving on is now a Corinth. We're now looking at the uh, roundabout 57. Um, and he is a Corinth and there's a knock on the door. And there's a lady called Phoebe from one of the local house churches. And she says, I'm making a visit to, to Rome, mm. um, a business visit. She was a business lady, but she was also called the deacon, um, which means servant of the church. And Paul appreciated her service very much indeed. And she said to him, can you give me a letter of introduction? So Paul writes a letter which includes 
look after Phoebe. Help Phoebe along her way. So she is carrying documents. How many documents, we don't know. But we know that in the Romans that we have, we have preserved for us five documents. So we read one book. But if you were to read the book slowly, you would see it as five distinct cultures in writing. For instance, the very first one, which is found in chapters 1, verse 18 to 3.20, you have Paul writing as if he's a prophet. There is a lot of analysis and condemnation for the way the world has gone. He talks about the Roman paganism, the Greek intellectualism, the, the Jewish uh, religion, and then the rest of the world. And all of those three experiences, the first three I mentioned, were genuine, real, subjective experiences that he himself had had. He knew what the Romans was like as a Roman citizen. He'd lived in a city of Tarsus, which is a Greek city, and he studied in Jerusalem. So he was perfectly able to do the analysis that we have in those books. But he's speaking like a prophet. When we get to, to chapter 3, verse 21, it changes to a priest. And there's a care and a tenderness. And he's talking about Jesus and the value of the cross. He's making them realise if they believe, they will belong. And that tenderness that comes out, if you read, for, for instance, Malachi chapter 2, and you see the covenant that's given to the house of Levi, is speaking like that. You need to turn that up in your Bible. When he's finished with that at chapter 5, verse 11, from 5, 12 to chapter 8, verse 39, he now tells them what it's like to be a child of God. How the baptism to glory takes place over those three to four chapters. But it starts in chapter 5, halfway through chapter 5, verse 12. Having covered that particular one, it now speaks like an evangelist. When you come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we could say more about those chapters, they would be an appendix in a modern book, but in those days it became part of one of the scrolls. Um, he has a boldness in reaching out with the gospel near and far to the privileged and to the non-privileged, privileged Jew and to the non-privileged Gentile and the rest of the world. And his enthusiasm for evangelism and for reaching out into the community and beyond the community is very strong in those chapters. We tell, he tells them to be aware of the world in chapters 1 and 3, when you come to the end, chapters 12 to 15 and verse 14, it shows them how to behave in the world. In other words, they're not out of the world. They're kept from the world, but they are in the world. And there were practical things. How do you pay your taxes? Mm. How practical <laughs> is that? How to love people who are not lovable? Mm. How practical is that? How not to take vengeance? How practical is that? Is that and there's a load of them. We call them love in action, the behavior as a child of God. So the first one is becoming the child of God, the second is being the child of God, and the third concept is behaving as the child of God, both in evangelism and in outreach. So they are they are what um, the book is about. If I if if I have opportunity, I could tell you some of the main 
teaching in the five scrolls. Yeah, go for Are it. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The main teaching in the in the five scrolls is this. Christians, don't, before you judge the world, beware of it. Don't mingle with it. It's a, a warning. You see, if he's writing to Christians, why should he mention all these dangers in the world? If it isn't saying this is fire, keep away. This is destruction. Don't go that way. He'll put the other side at the end of the book, but he starts off the book with saying, please don't be involved with the world. Now, there are three things. Paganism, putting something before God. Idolatry, in the forms it comes, will have a negative effect on the way you live, even on your physical life. That's what that is about. When he's talking about the the intellectual Greek who would look down on the Romans and the rest of society, he says, wait a moment, you might be intellectual, but if your life is just as bad morally, you've not gained anything, and the Jews as well. You can say you've got a religion, but if you held it to yourself and it isn't shared, what use is it? And uh, it, that way, it brings us to uh, one of the most remarkable passages in the second uh, symbol, which is that Christ is the redemption from prison. The prison he's talking about is the prison of sin. And the illustration he's using initially comes all the way back to what the Jewish people and, and new, new Christians would believe, which was the escape from Egypt and the escape from Babylon and the escape from slavery in the Roman world. How do you escape? This is Jesus's come to redeem you with his blood from that escape. But then he uses another picture. He uses the picture of propitiation. And this is what you would call temple meaning. When they would go and make propitiation with the blood of sacrifices, the blood of one sacrifice has given you an atonement that brings you, and this is the major impact of this section, that brings you into friendship atonement with God or friendship reconciliation with God and that is the second it's the most liberating concept that you'll ever come across in those chapters and you finish off with the blessings of being justified by faith having peace with God having access into the very presence of the grace of God so the grace of God is behind you, in front of you, above you, below you, to the side of you. You can go anywhere and grace of God is with you. you. You just simply can go into your local supermarket and the grace of God is with you. And you can go into prayer and the grace of God is with you. It's the most wonderful uh, chapter that you have. When you come to the third one, and we mentioned it, baptism, it starts off with this concept of the one man who has made all these things possible, the end of chapter five. And this one man has brought two things into your life and into my life for eternity, which is grace and righteousness. Some people sometimes say to me, how is it that we won't sin when we get to glory? If we do it on earth, why can't we sin sometime in eternal life that we are banished because we sin? Because we are under the influence and the uh, essence of God's grace for every single second of eternity in righteousness. We'll never do anything that's wrong. It's as if we've gone to uh, glory and we've had all the 
bad things in us filtered out. And what's left is grace and glory by one man. And being baptised is being baptised for righteousness sake. We're not baptised as an event. We're baptised as a life. It's the newness of life we're baptised into. And so that becomes a, a marvellous teaching. When you come to chapter 7, um, it's uh, the fact that there are external pressures against our freedom and there are internal pressures against our freedom. And he says you have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, it's no condemnation at the beginning, no separation from the love of God inside. And in the middle, there is the most amazing statement. And this most amazing statement is that creation itself is going to be glorified. You see, we haven't switched on the universe yet. It's still as if it's having a baby, but we haven't seen the baby. We haven't seen what's going to happen. When we talk about new heavens and new earth, it doesn't even appear to our minds the, the great ventures that's going to take place. And of course, when you come to a dealing with the, which what, what was in those times, who is the gospel for? Paul says it's for everyone, not just for Jews. It's for the weak and the feeble, the strong and the rich, the near and the far. And who's going to take this gospel to them? He says, if we don't go, they won't hear. And if they won't hear, they won't believe. If they don't believe, they're not saved. And so you have this wonderful passion of the evangelist. And the very last one, of course, is um, Paul preaching like a pastor. He says, I, I am on my knees before you. I am pleading with you. I, I want you to know what it really means to be transfigured, transformed, that you become a new person and your life becomes something that other people will see. And it's the life of Christ in you that they are aware of. And he's pleading like a pastor. And so you have all these five things in the book, which over the weeks we will begin to unpack. Let me conclude about the personal letter of Paul. Around the five scrolls, there was a piece of parchment that held the scrolls together. Mm. On the one side of the parchment was one part of Paul's personal letter, which you'll find in the first 17 verses. The second half was a conclusion to the letter, and that was written on the other side. Mm. So that when they copied it out, they copied the first part of the letter on as we have in our Bibles. And when they, they completed, they copied the second half of the letter. So you are wise to read the letter from beginning and then go to the end. So the letter is from 1 to 17 of chapter 1, and the letter is from 14 of chapter 15 to the end. One of the most noticeable things about Paul, and it's emphasised in this personal letter, is that he was the man who had a self-awareness, not a self-importance. He would call himself the chief of sinners and least of the apostles, but he had a sense of self-importance, a self-awareness. And this self-awareness meant, I am an apostle, but I'm also a servant. I've got the best job. I've also got the worst job. Um, 
and he could see himself and he, he could see what he had done. He could see what he wanted. He could see where he wanted to go. And one of the places he wanted to go was Spain. Now, if you come from Cornwall, <laughs> you know it's very easy to get from Spain to Cornwall. And I can see that Paul's curiosity may have pushed him from Spain and spend a few days in Cornwall. <laughs> so you people in Cornwall may just be fortunate to know <laughs> that Paul was on your shores. I'll take that. <laughs> um, did you want to mention the charts briefly and yeah. how they tie oh, in yes, for I anyone will. that wants yes. to look? I, I will, I'll mention them at one, two, three. The, the first chart I would encourage you to look at is a chart that um, gives you a more detailed outline called Romans, the Gospel. And it's got a picture of a prophet, priest, apostle, evangelist, and pastor. And then it's got various elements within those sections. So okay. as you read those sections, they might be apt to... Yeah. Um, I did conceive the idea once that the first uh, scroll was like being in the winter, all death. The second scroll was like spring, mm. coming to life. The third scroll was like summertime, entering into freedom. The fourth scroll was like the autumn days, harvest time, reaping mm. the gospel. And the last one was all seasons, no matter what it is, you live for Christ. And that's the first scroll. That's the, the second scroll, which I've kept very simple, I've identified them as five scrolls, and I've built it just around the word life. And life without God, the first one, um, life for Christ, life, sorry, um, through Christ, the second one, life in Christ, the third one, life for Christ, the fourth one, and life with Christ. That's worth looking at. And again, mm. making a note to simplify for evangelistic purposes, mm. I did a chart that was printed. And the first one was, why do we need the gospel? The second was, what is the gospel? You can see the pattern developing, mm. can't you? Yeah. The third was, how do we experience the gospel? The fourth is, who is the gospel for? And then the last one is, is the gospel practical? And to that, I've given a detailed outline if people want it, uh, want it as well. They're the three scrolls that I would mention. You may wish to put up some other scrolls. For instance, there is the library at Ephesus, and that was where Peter did his main teaching. You might want to, sh to show that. And then there's the ruins of Corinth where he would have written the mm. letter and the ruins of Rome mm. where he would have sent the letter to. You may want to include that uh, as well. That's so great. Thank you so much, Robert, for sharing that. I hope it's whet your appetite for Romans. I know a lot of people, it's a very precious book to them. So it'll be great to delve into that more. And these charts look really helpful as well. I think it's really helpful to have different ways of understanding the book. And maybe you could be looking through these and meditating on them as Paul and Clover um, preach. Well, thank you very much, Robert. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you all soon. Bye. <laughs>